building up and encouraging one another. And my wife went to a workshop the last three days, uh, required 16 hours of uh, continuing education or whatever it's called for credits for to keep on teaching and doing the Montessori method and all that. But she said one of the sessions she went to, one of the presenters said, it's difficult to pour from an empty cup. And the point was in the lesson was take care of yourself and keep yourself fresh and, and uh, able to produce. And I thought about how filling ourselves with the Scriptures, even things that we already know, have rehearsed uh, 40 or 50 years in our own lives. It's just something about the living and active Word of God that when we fill ourselves with that and associate with the saints and have a Christian fellowship that it builds us up in such a way that nothing else does. We're studying on Sunday nights this uh, series on the last things. And we're ready now for lesson number four, uh, the last decision, uh, Judgment Day. And I've noticed after putting this together and the way this flows, this, you know, and trying to be self-critical and self-analytical and all that, I looked at it and I said, this is just a long list of scriptures. And I still remember a professor back at Fried Hardeman some 45, 46 years, 48 years ago said that as long as you fill your, your lesson with scripture, you know you got that much of it right. So I feel good about that. But it's, uh, it does seem like a long list of of scriptures, and last week we looked at this intermediate state of the dead, and someone after uh, after services said to me, "Well, what about the scripture about dividing the body and soul and spirit?" And I said, "Well, that's on the back page of one of the charts." When I looked, and it's not there, so I put it in tonight's lesson. As we try to distinguish whether man is a trichotomy or a dichotomy, we have body, soul, and spirit, or just whether the spirit and soul are the same thing. And I believe the Bible somehow distinguishes. Um, between three things, the body, the soul, and the spirit, uh, in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And we looked at this holding place of the dead, Hades, or divided into two areas, paradise for the faithful and the righteous, those saved, and the torment for those that are unrighteous and that know not God. And so in this verse, in, uh, well, I've got two different references. First Thessalonians 5, uh, 23, mentions the body and the soul and the spirit. And then in Hebrews 4 and verse 12 is the sharp two-edged sword dividing even the soul and the spirit. Those two things are mentioned there. So in verse 23 of uh, chapter 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it, it appears that, that the body and the soul and the spirit are three distinct entities, and yet we use the term spirit and soul, or I do, just interchangeably without even thinking because we, we think about the salvation of our soul and uh, the things that are able to save our souls. And, and yet the spirit is not left out of that when we say, well, I want to have my soul saved. We're not saying, well, I want my soul saved, but I don't care what happens to my spirit, as though there's a whole different world there or place for them to be. So I think there are three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And it may be that, as I mentioned last week, that we share with the animal life the soulish body or the soulish part of us and the spirit belongs only to man because the animals have the breath of life and gives them something that the plants don't have. But that just may be sheer conjecture on my part. It just makes sense to me. So we talk about this business of judgment day and the things that we face every day in life just points to the reality of our hope that there is going to be a judgment day and that there's going to be some kind of justice brought to all the world's criminals and to Hitler and, and Khomeini and whoever the bloodthirsty tyrants are of our world and uh, the criminals and the murderers and all of that, that God is going to deal with that and handle it in such a way we don't know necessarily who's guilty in every case or how to handle it or what they deserve, but God will work on that for us. 
So we looked last week, and I'm just going to hurriedly click through this, but on the left side of the chart is the idea that uh, on the earth, the body and the soul are connected, and then there's uh, physical death, and then when physical death happens, the soul is separated from the body, or the spirit and the soul are separated from the body. And uh, at the top circle, there's this, this idea of uh, paradise, uh, the Sheol, holding place of the dead, Hades, is divided between the righteous and the wicked. The body goes into the grave, and uh, you probably can't even see those. But anyway, at the, at the resurrection and the second coming of Christ, the body and the spirit are reunited, and then we go into the judgment, and that's the part we're talking about tonight. And then later, the next two lessons will be on the destiny of the soul, uh, heaven or hell. And so, in Acts 17 is one of the clearest passages that talks about this when Paul in the Areopagus is talking to these Athenians, these idolaters, and he's going to explain to them something of the nature of the God they don't even know anything about. And he tells them, one of the reasons it's important for you to know what I'm telling you, he says, is because God has appointed the day in which He will judge the world. Uh, so he says, God is now declaring to men, all men everywhere, that they should repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So this is one of the glimpses into the idea, the concept of this great day of judgment. And as we dissect this tonight, you'll see that there are actually, uh, that God is the judge, but he's judging through the Son he's appointed here. This is in verse 30 and 31 that we just read. So Paul then reasoned before Felix. He reasoned of righteousness, temperance, or self-control, and judgment to come. And you think about a sermon outline or a topic of discussion for a heathen judge or ruler or governor, things that he would need to know about, they would need to know about, he or she. Something of righteousness, of self-control, a worldly king needs to hear about self-control, or if you're going to obey the gospel or listen to God and follow Him, that requires a positive kind of self-control, not just restraint or refraining from evil, but of acting on and doing what you know is right. And that's all important because there's going to be this day of judgment. God is going to have a reckoning about the way we've lived our lives. And so in Romans 12 and verse 19, Hebrews 10 and verse 30, and passages like that, we understand that God says, I'll handle this. Uh, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And then in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8, this description of the second coming of Christ with His mighty angels, and there's this talk of inflaming fire taking vengeance on the unrighteous and the ungodly. And that's another time sequence that we can hardly wrap our brains around, or at least it's difficult when you're thinking about the end of the world, the coming of the Lord, the angels, the resurrection. All this is happening simultaneously or at one great event, the last day, and we don't have any indication of how long it takes from the time those events happen, the resurrection, the second coming, the angels, and all that, and then the judgment. Is it like 10 seconds or 10 weeks or 10 years? It's like those things don't even count because all that stuff is coming to an end and the elements are melting with fervent heat and time will be no more as we sing about. So there's no concept on the spiritual side of how long this takes. So the question I have just in thinking about this today in Second Thessalonians 1 and verse 8, when is this vengeance taken? It's all a part of the same process. Are the angels going to be taking vengeance right then in the air on the unrighteous ungodly? Or is it simply a part of the process when it takes place that God makes the final decision or Christ says you go this way, you on the left, you on the right. And then there's Revelation 20 and some of these pictures in, in Revelation of, of this uh, great day of coming before the white throne of judgment. 
But we know from the Scriptures that judgment is certain. And these are some of the people listed who are going to be judged. And it's not, not um, limited to these. But in Matthew 10 and verse 15, Jesus is talking about those who reject Christ. And a lot of the Israelites, because of their grandpa and, and their daddy and their mama and the family traditions and the commandments of God, had it in their hearts, this is what God wants and this is how you please God. And this stuff about a cross and about the risen Christ and a church... And all that's just not right. We want to do it like we've been shown and what we've been taught, and we will not violate our conscience, and so we reject this man of Nazareth. We're just not gonna we're not gonna do this. We're gonna to stick to the law, we're gonna do it like the commandment says, because it came from God. And so those who reject Christ, Jesus said it's gonna be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in judgment than for you or for these people. And so there even seems to be some indication that there might be degrees of reward and punishment. Um, but that's another issue. And here in Matthew 11, Woe to thee, Chorazin! Woe to thee, Bethsaida! I tell you, it's going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you in the, in the day of judgment. And so these wicked cities and wicked peoples were going to be judged, and so were these Israelites who rejected Christ. And then the men of Nineveh are mentioned in Matthew 12, that they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. And in Second Peter 2, verse 4 and verse 9, they, the wicked are reserved, these unjust people are reserved until the day of judgment to be punished. So it's obviously clear over and over again that God is saving up the day of wrath, the day of judgment, that He's going to settle all these accounts. And it's going to be universal. The universally spoken of here in Acts 17 was that all men everywhere, that God will judge all men, all people everywhere. And Matthew 25 that we'll see in detail in just a moment all nations will be gathered together. But then, even though it's all nations, when they're judged, they're spoken to individually. And so we divide it further in other passages how that even though it's all people as a general group, everybody who's ever lived and who's alive at the time Jesus comes again, when we answer to God, we answer for the deeds done in the body, whether it's good or bad, and that's me and you and not the group we're part of. And being judged as, well, you're in a good family, so you're okay, or you're in a bad family, and you're in trouble, but rather how we've lived. And then 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1, speaks of uh, Paul speaks there to Timothy about God judging the living and the dead. So that's everybody, those who are alive when he comes and those who have already died. Or if you look at it spiritually, the ones who are spiritually dead, it even fits that. And then... He's going to execute judgment upon all to convince all that are ungodly. In other words, someday all eyes will be opened. They will see Him as He is, and then the convincing will be done. Yes, there is a God. Yes, He is real. And yes, He does mean what He says. And He's going to follow through and make no experiments and no mistakes. Revelation 20 speaks of the dead, small and great. That could mean possibly and probably the little ones and the big ones or the regular people and the mighty important people, the kings of the earth. Everybody is included in this great umbrella. And individually then, he gets down to business in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the deeds done in the body. And again, Matthew 16, he shall reward every man according to his works. In Romans 14, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Romans 2 specifies again, He will render to every man according to his deeds. And then Revelation 20 and verse 13, in that picture of the judgment scene, every man was judged according to his works. And, of course, in the idea of the great gulf fixed between the rich man and, and uh, Lazarus, and there was no crossing over, that judgment will be final. And in this question of who will be the judge, 
this is another one of those, I guess it's a matter of semantics or just how you want to look at it because if you say, well, is God going to be the judge or is Christ going to be the judge? The answer would be yes. And they're both the same in, in deity. And yet, specifically, it says that Christ will be the judge. So, let's go with that. And that doesn't mean if it says Christ is the judge that God's not going to be anywhere around. It's like, in human terms, we can hardly fathom two being the same and yet being different at the same time. But here in Hebrews 12 and verse 22, you're come to God, the judge of all. Uh, it's called in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 that we just read, the judgment seat of Christ to receive the deeds done in the body, whether they're good or bad. And then the claim, I and my Father are one, John 10 and verse 30. And then God is threefold and God who judges is the Son. According to John 1, that whole 14 verses there explains how that the Father and the Son are one. I am in my Father and the Father is in me. And, and so they're together in this. And it's the same description really in the creation and in John 1. That without Him was not anything made that hath been made. And yet God created the heavens and the earth. But it was Christ who created the heavens and the earth. That's not a contradiction. It's just a, a fine-tuning of how to, how to say something about the Godhead. And then in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 33, all nations are to be gathered before the Son. And then what will be the standard of judgment? The popular opinion? The, the latest and greatest novel or philosophy of man? In John 12 and verse 48, Jesus said, The word that I have spoken... The same shall judge him in the last day. James 2 says, So speak ye, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. The words written in the New Testament, uh, the law of God. And in Revelation 20, verse 12 and 13, in a word picture there, and we, you've seen movies and I guess the TV shows or whatever that shows the throne of God and the great big book and the, the feather quill or whatever, and God is there on the throne in front of the books, you know, making his judgment. Well, that's the picture given in Revelation that there's a book of works, that there's somehow there's an account made in the mind of God of all the things we've done or said, and beyond that, and beyond our own recognition sometimes, the motive behind, the true self behind why we did or said what we did, and God can see through all of that. And if we read the living and active Word of God, it's able to help us to split apart Divide asunder the body and the spirit and the soul and joints and the marrow and, and the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so it won't be the creeds and doctrines of mankind, not our own conscience, our own intentions, our own sincerity, or the religion of our family, or the practices of the majority, or personal opinions. Opinions. It'll be the things written in the book. So then the question, well, what is it we're going to be judged on? What's this test about? In 2 Corinthians 5, as we mentioned, the deeds that we have done. Matthew 12 says the words that we have spoken. The thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. The secret things will be brought to light in the mind of God in the judgment. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14. And then in Matthew 25, what we have not done. It doesn't fit our tradition or our modus operandi of how we do things, but there's been times, and we have done it on Sunday nights when uh, Alex was here and, and uh, Sean and I took turns reading extensive passages from Scripture. Nothing but the Scripture. And it's hard to take it that way because we need, we're expecting someone to yell at us or explain things or dissect it or extrapolate some truth from it. But if you just took Matthew 25... Jesus' words, and this is what he said. This would be a pretty tall order 
for a modern day Christian to just hear this much and walk away with this and try to live up to it. Let's just listen to this passage. Verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked or clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them truly. I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these you did it not to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so Jesus just laid it out there and he said, These are the things you're going to be tested on. This is an open book test. Here you have the living word of God. And the things that God is going to be counting is not just your belief system, not just whether you had the correct doctrine, but whether or not you lived it in your life and made a difference in this world. And so we constantly hear this prayer. This earnest prayer, Lord, help us to be lights in the community. And for the, for the life of us, we can't figure out who's lying or where the lies are, where the deceptions are, where the taking the advantage of the system is, where this is not in man that walks to direct his steps. But we know these steps about feeding someone who's hungry without necessarily questioning their motives. Sometimes the lies, the deception, the, the trickery is obvious. But that's not what we're going to be judged on, whether we figured all that out. It's going to be whether we did these things necessary for the body. And not just say, be you warmed and filled. But the things that are checked here in this judgment scene, given by Christ Himself, who knows what's coming, because He's going to be the one doing it. He says, we're looking at this, the work of your hands. Uh, the feeding the hungry, the clothing the naked, and visiting the sick and the, and the widows and all that. And so from all of this, we see that, obviously, there is a great day coming. And Peter said it's... It, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us at first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so these, these inspired writers were given this same body of information that there is a great day coming. God is taking notes. He is taking notice. He does care about how we care and how we live. And so Paul would say to these idolaters, you need to get your life right. You need to do a 180 here and repent because God said He wants all men everywhere to repent because He said there's this day coming in which He will judge the world in righteousness. And so in 1 John 4 and verse 17, there's this phrase of having boldness in the day of judgment. 
And how can this be? By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. See, it's hard to sometimes even comprehend that, that I'm going to walk up to that or go in the presence of God and just be okay with that. I mean, somehow in the back of my mind, I guess maybe the way I was raised or the way the preaching always was or what the Bible says in sermons like this, it's like I must have missed something and he's going to get me for that. So I'm scared. I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to go because he'll find something and send me to hell. And I know better than that. I've got sermons and tapes proving that I preach opposite of that, that God doesn't work that way. But in the human side of things, it just somehow feels like, well, how dare I would say, okay, I'm God, I'm okay, let's do this. Because that very attitude ought to send me to hell, I think. And so it's like, how do we do this? Well, here's one way. We have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. And if he's looking at things like feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, being a good neighbor, being a good influence, speaking the truth, providing things honest in the sight of all men, and those kinds of value systems, the Christian system, then that's how we can have confidence because we can be washed in the blood and have our sins washed away. We can live for him, be lights in this world, and be citizens of two kingdoms, in this world, in the church, and in the kingdom of heaven when we finally get there in the presence of God. It may be that tonight you wonder whether you're ready to go or whether to meet him or not, and there may be some changes you need to make. And if there are, if there are those changes, this is a good time for you to repent and confess and make things right with the church or with others you may have hurt. Or if it's just between you and God, you handle that in private. Or it may be someone here who hasn't put on the Lord in baptism, and that's available tonight. Everything is ready. A good group of people on your side are willing to witness your confession and your salvation tonight and being added to the church. Then we have confidence in the day of judgment. We've done all that we can do. God gave us the rules. He gave us the regulations. He gave us the hope, the instructions, and we follow that by faith. If you need to come to Jesus, would you come tonight now as we stand and as we sing, Jackson? When we walk with